Welcome to Cloud Insiders, the podcast that brings cloud down to earth. As always, head over to cloudinsiders.fm for show notes and other giveaways. Now let's get into it. Today we're joined by Richard Stinton from Ireland and Christopher Lewis from Extrovert. Great to have you both with us today. Before we start our discussion around cloud hosting and how organizations are making the move to cloud, can you introduce yourselves, please? And Richard, if we start with you, so a bit of history and what you currently do at Island. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Richard Stinton. Um, I'm a cloud architect within Island. Uh, I've been in the industry over 30 years, started out in IT infrastructure, IT service management, um, joined VMware in the early days, ESX version 2. I was at VMware for seven years, finishing up in the cloud center of excellence for Europe. And I left uh, to join uh, a cloud hosting provider and now, as I say, working at iLand. Awesome. And Chris? Uh, yeah, uh, my name is uh, Christopher Lewis. I am a lead consultant for Extrovert. I've been with the company now for about 18 months. Before that, I worked for a massive multinational uh, organization in, in uh, computer services. So I'm currently working within the cloud automation and data center virtualization practice of Extrovert. Excellent. So jumping straight in, what is cloud hosting and why is it important? I'll dive in. So yes, I think I think it's uh, there's been an interesting sort of history. People moved through having their own facility, whether you call it a data center or a data cupboard on premises. Then the sort of advent of co-location in data centers, but people basically doing the same thing in a co-location facility. And with the advent of uh, of cloud, which of course is really largely driven by virtualization. Uh, people are seeing that they no longer have to build their own capabilities. They can now simply sign up to something as a service, whether it's infrastructure as a service or moving up the stack into platform as a service, software as a service, where they're taking, in the case of infrastructure as a service, uh, effectively paying per month for the resources that they want to use, be it on a pay-as-you-go basis or perhaps reserving some capacity in, in the concept of a resource pool. And... Um, being able to have a known monthly bill and they can flex above that if they need to. So it's really taking away the, the whole point of why on earth would you build your own data center or your own data covered data facility on premises. I think, I think it's what's also important is that it's an extension to people's on-site infrastructure as well. So the ability to scale out quickly into a cloud environment that doesn't necessarily have the historical timelines involved with deploying um, kit and tin on the floor uh, is also a good use case for customers wanting to use cloud hosting. Absolutely. And I think things like disaster recovery is a good case in point where people either didn't have any disaster recovery capability at all because they felt it was too expensive and they just take the risk or they effectively doubled up on everything. So they might sign up with a, a hosting partner to take co-location to build out a similar infrastructure to what they had on their own premises or they might use their old kit and put that in a dr facility and uh, you know uh, replicate their data in some way whether it's at the application level or using sun replication now that's being offered as a service uh, we're typically seeing that coming in at a quarter of the cost of doing it yourself and for the first time giving uh, the, the sort of mid, mid-tier SME market, low-end enterprise, a, a really cost-effective disaster recovery option. I don't know whether you want to just comment on things like legacy kits. So we, you know, we still get requests for 
IaaS and, and DRAS, and they say, oh, by the way, we've got some physical SQL boxes, or we've got you know, some HP UX boxes. We even had some open VMS boxes the other day. You know, what can we do about them? And it's like, well, generally speaking, we're talking about you know, x86 virtualization here. So have you considered virtualizing that AD controller or that SQL box? And often they do. But for, for things like HPUX or AIX or I-Series, AS400, it's the, it's the providers like Island and, and others that can, what we typically do in that situation is we will partner with our uh, cloud hosting company, uh, data center company, which is Equinix, and say, well, you know, let's take a rack 300 yards that way and they can put their HP boxes in there and, and, and put a cross-connect into, into us so we can connect very, very quickly and it gets the problem away. But you know, Azure and AWS can't really help there. Chris, do you sort of agree? Do you... Yeah, to, to me, it's, um, it's about having the best of both worlds. Uh, I don't necessarily see any customers being purely cloud or purely on-premises. I think that the, the, the hybrid model that is being touted quite a lot is probably the right model at the moment uh, i'm not saying that we won't transition to a to a fully cloud hosting model but i think at the moment most of the people i work with are finding it difficult to let go of this traditional way of doing stuff even though it's costing them so much more money uh, and so yeah so from a cloud hosting point of view it's definitely all about hybrid but which is why dr as a service is a big use case these days because it reduces that sunken cost that you know, you haven't got to be responsible for power, heat, you know, data center space for a kit you're almost never going to use apart from the day, the yearly DR test. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think one of the, the other areas we're seeing is um, the whole change in the uh, the way that uh, software developers, ISVs, are delivering their applications to customers. So, you know, if you think in the old days, if you were deploying a an enterprise application on, on site, you would be building databases and application servers and making it highly available. Installing multiple DVDs of software would take a long time, a lot of consultancy to implement. And now software developers are building software as a service solutions. But under the covers, they're using cloud hosting to deliver that. So as you were saying earlier, Chris, you know, it's the idea of rapidly being able to deploy a stack to then deliver an application as what I call pseudo SaaS. So it's not SaaS in the sense of Salesforce or uh, Workday or something like that, but it's sort of traditional ISV developed application that instead of being installed as a three-tier application, it's simply being paid on a per user per month basis that's beamed out over the internet securely. So you both mentioned SaaS applications, but customers also find it difficult to let go of their traditional infrastructure. Are there any other business drivers that are making people move to the cloud? Is there anything in particular that they're looking for when they do make a move? I think, I think to Chris's point earlier, you know, people have gone through the usual three and five year life cycles of hardware refreshes. And if they're looking at maybe moving offices, they're looking at maybe moving or changing their co-location capabilities. I think really now there really is an option to, particularly in the, small, the smaller end of the market. I mean, we work, we work with a lot of companies who have 30 to 50 virtual machines and it's like, We've got a facility here, it's it's a lot of electricity, cooling, do we refresh it every five years? Do we go out and buy a new kit? We've got to talk about it. Do we need all these admin staff to manage all this lot or do we move it to the cloud and do we use those guys for something more interesting, frankly? 
And moving to infrastructure as a service is, is a relatively simple change in business process. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the, you know, the other uses of hyperscale cloud and those sort of things. But certainly with someone who's used to using a VMware environment, if they can move that to the cloud, they can still have all the visibility of the vSphere resources under the covers, you know, CPU ready times, all the things they're used to seeing on premises, but it's in the cloud. They don't have to worry about, you know, changing the oil, patching the servers, updating the network infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. They're just paying for what they consume but they're still able to drive it as they were used to previously. To me, there's three main drivers, uh, sorry, three main drivers, and uh, they sort of add up to, to, to one key thing, I think. And so to me, it's agility, flexibility, cost, and they all end up being value to business. So the agility, being able to scale out, scale up, scale out, scale, scale back if they need to, and do that quickly, the flexibility of doing that as well. The cost associated with that is a monthly cost rather than a, an upfront sunk-in cost that you then have to sort of weigh up over time. But then the whole rapid delivery of cloud services. So let's, let's take an example of a, a web service, You know, not, not necessarily a hosted web service like uh, you were hosting on a, a web service hoster, but if you had your own website and you were delivering a, a catalog launch you know, and, and being able to scale out to, for that business demand, but not going to have to buy the hardware to do that. And then once that catalog launch is done, being able to scale back down. And so for that one month, you might you know, quadruple your cost, but it's only for that one month. And then it will come back down to normal again. So that just makes sense because you then don't have all this hardware left over. It's that flexibility and agility that makes the difference between, I think, a business that's going to survive, especially in a small business market, small to medium-sized business market, and the flexibility, agility of their cloud services uh, or using cloud services is going to make them a much bigger differentiator than someone who's not willing to embrace that. Okay. That, that flexibility you've mentioned, is that also seen as a concern for some organizations moving to the cloud? We offer flexibility in the sense that uh, customers traditionally may be running VM, VMware on-premises. They, so they know they've got you know, five ESX hosts, whatever it is, handy VMs they've got. They know the headroom they have on their clusters you know, for adding more, more VMs, more storage. We've taken the model, which is different from most of the hyperscale providers who give you VMs according to what you might call T-shirt size. You know, so many CPUs, so much RAM, so much storage. We've taken the view of saying you can reserve capacity and you can then basically using the resource pool concept you can then put as many vms of whatever size you want into that resource pool and change and chop and change those resources as you wish but then also so you've got a fixed monthly cost for that reservation but then optionally to burst above that so as you know to chris's point if you have a month end quarter end where you need to scale out the number of web, web servers that you have at your front end you can burst that and, and pay by the hour for the resources that you're consuming for that relatively short period and then come back down again. And if over a period of weeks and months you see that your reservation is actually filling up and you're starting to use Burst a lot, you can simply make a contract change to increase the size of that reservation, be it CPU, RAM or storage. So that gives you know, massive flexibility while containing the cost. So you know, one of the things people often, often worry about is, is, is cloud sprawl. You know, so we used to talk about VM sprawl. But you know, when you give someone the keys to this infinite pool of capability, and we've, we've seen this, uh, I, I worked for, for nine months at Microsoft Azure prior to joining Ireland, and uh, you know, we've seen customers going absolutely mad, spinning up VMs and web services and storage and 
you know, there's, there's quite a few vendors have appeared on the market to enable customers to understand how they're just exploding into the cloud and why they've got this massive bill every month. And there is a, a lot of hidden cost, in, uh, particularly in the hyperscale clouds. So yes, you've got to keep that under control, uh, otherwise it, it just becomes uh, you know, mental. So I think that's one of the key things that organizations need to worry about is this shadow IT cloud sprawl. Uh, and the whole point of cloud hosting is to allow you know, your developers to use these cloud services to, or, or maybe not developers, maybe you actually, your systems are on there, but um, one of the biggest use cases for me is, is development. It is to allow them to use those cloud services and, uh, and scale up, scale out, build more machines, but then also control that to make sure that you're sort of rim fencing what they can and can't do. It's like giving uh, you know, the keys to a sweet shop. Everybody goes and takes loads of stuff and then, then suddenly has to pay for it. It's an interesting conundrum now that we've obviously moved into is this the cost associated with it and, and trying to and rein in the developers and, and the use cases for people to, as, as Richard said, you know, people just spending thousands of pounds a month on, on cloud when they don't necessarily need to uh, if there's not a business case or business value. The cost doesn't go away because you move to cloud. It just comes in a different package. I mean, one of, one of the things we do at Island. Um, rightly or wrongly, is, is we, 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 we analyze how our customers are consuming the cloud. And if someone has you know, merrily spun up a VM that's got far too much CPU and far too much RAM, and they're not consuming it, you know, we'll go back to them and say, do you realize you've, you've heavily over-provisioned that VM? And you could actually save money by, by reducing its, its capability. For most organizations, it's about consumption, getting that consumption up. But at the same time, you want to be an honest provider and uh, you know, make sure people come back for more and know that you're um, you know, not overbilling them. So you've mentioned hyperscale cloud, so you mentioned over-provisioning there. When customers are moving to the cloud, what other considerations do they need to sort of take into account? Obviously, let's assume we're moving from traditional infrastructure where they can kind of use it as they want. How is it different in the cloud? What do they have to be careful of? Yeah, so I think so one of the things that people are concerned about have been concerned about for a while particularly in the in the heavily regulated industries is, is around security and compliance so if you think about traditional implementations on premises people will have been very concerned about making sure that you know external firewalls are correctly configured usernames and passwords are kept under control internally but you've got this sort of invisible benefit of the fact that everything is within your your bricks and mortar if you like when you put that in the cloud, there's nothing magic in there that makes it heavily secure. So if you move to you know, the hyperscale clouds, yes, they will provide you with an edge firewall capability. But if you don't close it off, then everyone can potentially get in. So at Island, we took the decision from the, from the beginning that we were going to deliver. The analogy I use is like a Lexus car. You go and buy a Lexus car, it's fully loaded. It's not like a Mini where you've got 200 options. That you can choose from so we took the decision that enterprise customers will need security and compliance unless there may be development shop or something like that so we've partnered with uh, a number of very well-known vendors people like trend micro and their deep security offering uh, we've worked with people like tenable and their nezus offering uh, we work with encrypted storage from nimble best of breed server and networking technology from cisco so we deliver an enterprise cloud that will give the same performance, the same resiliency, the same security as 
the kind of infrastructures that people have been developing on premises for, for several years. And we provide compliance around that as well. So, you know, we work very closely with financial services, with pharmaceuticals, uh, with healthcare in the US. You know, so we're, we're, we have ISO 27001 compliance. We're in, the, in, in Europe, we're CSA compliant, uh, Cloud Security Alliance. You know, we're members of uh, um, G Cloud. We're, we're joining um, UK Cloud as well at the moment. So, you know, we're providing a really secure and compliant platform so people don't have to worry about, oh, we need to install antivirus, we need to install um, dual vendor firewalling. We, you know, we have all that available from, from Cisco and from Palo Alto and from Checkpoint if people need that. You know, so whatever they were using on-premises, they can deploy that virtually in the cloud as well. And we're, we're able to provide that you know, really, really easily and quickly at a, at a known cost. Chris, are your, are your considerations sort of matched up so, with what Richard has just yeah. said? Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, security and regulation and data residency are one of the biggest concerns that any customer would have. Uh, but Richard's right, depending on the type of customer. But also, from my point of view, you need to make sure that any applications you're going to run in that cloud service are cloud-ready applications or cloud-native applications, uh, not necessarily um, you know, Docker-style applications, but just to make sure that they can scale the way that you want to scale them in a that cloud burst capacity point. Uh, but then also connectivity is key. You know, if you're extending your existing data center into the cloud as a sort of a, a real extension rather than a, a, an offsite solution, then you need to make sure that that connectivity and the, 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 the major vendors have their own VPN technologies. They all have their way of doing it. Uh, and so to me, connectivity is important, but then also understanding where your workloads are, uh, so management monitoring, and then also people and culture, I think is really important. Understanding that running applications from the cloud is different and requires different skill sets because not necessarily, not necessarily different skill sets, but allows your, uh, as Richard alluded to earlier, allows your VMware admins, if you like, to do more important, interesting things because they haven't got to worry about feeding and watering the VMware environment because it's being done by someone else. That's right. I think I absolutely agree with you, Chris. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of customers putting their toe in the water and initially just using site-to-site -site VPNs to connect their on-premises environment to the cloud. Uh, so to that extent, we we provide multiple 10 gigabit connections to the cloud, to the, to the internet. From a data sovereignty perspective, we, we have our own data centers, which are legally you know, British companies uh, in the UK, also in entities in, in the US and the Far East, and shortly to be opening up in, in continental Europe now because of uh, Brexit. But that said, we also we chose to work in uh, carry neutral data centers so that we can very quickly get on net with pretty much any of the telco providers. So we can connect up a customer who might already have a contract with a an MPLS carrier to simply put a tail into into our cloud from the Meet Me room, so we can very quickly bring that MPLS circuit in very securely into the customer's tenant effectively. So for customers who are looking to put in uh, maybe a one or two gigabit connection on a ten gig bearer initially, or maybe something smaller, five hundred meg on a on a one gig bearer, you know that is is very simple to implement. And I, I think I think it's a very important point that you make there that. If you think you're moving your business to the cloud, then the network does become a very large single point of failure. You know, as, as exemplified a few months ago when uh, there was a you know, major outage in one of the big London data centers due to a, a digger or something. 
you know, if that if that network goes down, you need to be you need to be thinking about having a redundant connection really over over diverse routes. Uh, if you if you're doing it properly, you might have a backup plan which is an ADSL circuit. But uh, you know, it's an important piece. As year, I was working with a number of large uh, NHS hospitals, and they were they were planning for you know pairs of ten gig circuits as uh, into Azure. Not to be ten gig immediately, but to start at a gig, and you know they were moving boatloads of stuff into the cloud that needs to have good connectivity. So you mentioned um, obviously failures there and, and designing around single points of failures. So I don't know if you're aware. Obviously, Amazon S3 had an issue last night. What can customers do in terms of those single points of failures, security and, and flexibility? Yeah, so that was that was something that really struck me when I joined Azure. Having come from a VMware background, was was the availability, you know, the concept of availability sets, availability zones, whatever you want to call them, in in AWS and Azure. That you know, a single VM didn't really have particularly high availability in those in those hyperscale clouds. So they've always talked about design for fail. So anything that you're implementing, you really needed two or even three instances of it, which doesn't play that nicely with traditional IT, where you maybe had a a single instance of an app server or a single instance of a SQL server and you let VMware HA and DRS take care of, of many of the failure modes that we're used to. So certainly at iLand we you know we fully support the concept of clustering, you know, be it SQL clusters, MySQL clusters. I think from a cloud perspective we, we need your applications need to be highly available yes. rather than worrying about the infrastructure. I think that that's the key point, I think. The thing that I uh, I noticed, and I think it's been fixed now in Azure, by the way. Um, but you know, I did some work where I was migrating some VMware workloads to to Azure, and it was the typical, you know, VM where you had a C drive and an F drive, say two two VMDKs, and you and you migrated that to Azure. And uh, first thing was it didn't run very quickly because they're limited to 500 IOPS per disk. So you need to re-architect your disks to get faster IOPS. Um, but the second thing was, because it was a single VM, not even in, in a single availability set, if they came along and patched the underlying Hyper-V host, they just pulled the rug. So you often come in in the morning and it would have booted up again, but it would have the usual Windows message saying, it's failed, what happened, you know. And it's like, oh, why did that happen? And, um, they, you know, they don't have HA. Well, they do, but it's, it's not DRS. They don't evacuate a host before they patch it. Now, that might have changed. I know they've done a lot in the, in the nine months since I left there around managed disks and that sort of thing. But that was one of the things, you know, the, the rule of thumb said, oh, if, you're, if you're moving a VMware host to Hyper-V or to Azure, you need to double up. So you need to make that into a SQL cluster or you need to make it into a pair of application servers with a, web, with a, a load balancer in front, whereas people might say, well, I don't really need that unless, you know, just for availability. It used to run for years under VMware, you know. So those are some of the considerations. And again, say they might have fixed that sort of thing by now. And I think, you know, to your point, Chris, moving from traditional IT of the last ten years, you know, people are now thinking about, as you say, making applications more available and scalable using, you know, maybe containers or however you want to do that. But you know, not to have just a single instance of a web server or an app server or a database server, but to make that more scalable for availability and scale purposes. And a new so we're starting to see a whole you know raft of new development use cases coming out now around you know being able to rapidly spin up VMs or containers. Yeah, I mean it's it's about re-architecting an application, especially if you're um, not using an off-the-shelf application, but you're using a, a custom-developed one in-house, and you want to move that to the cloud. Then that application that might have run on a single server or a three-tier architecture, but you know single-tier because it was running under VMware with its HA and DRS. You know, uh, moving that 
into a into a, a cloud application or applications based in the cloud. You, it, it's it's almost like a rearchitecture, maybe even a recoding exercise, depending on you know the, the quality of the code. Um, I think one of the important things is knowing your impact of your design decisions and the constraints. Uh, you know, so as Richard said, you know, design for failure, but also know what's going to happen if it fails and understanding and mitigating those risks. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's one point I want to come back on and, and sort of, I suppose, expand the discussion a bit is, and that, and that's security. So obviously, Richard, you've touched on Island and, and how you guys approach it with sort of encrypted storage and your sort of files by default. But if we look at the public clouds and, and the hyperscale clouds that are out there, what are they doing and what do organizations really need to consider if, if they move to one of those clouds? You know, the public clouds, busy, you know, the main, the main two, I guess, at the moment, Azure and, and AWS, constantly leapfrogging each other on their myriad capabilities. And, you know, Google Cloud coming alongside as well. But as I said, it's, it's, it's like um, it's a toolbox. You decide what you want to do and then you add additional services in. So if you want to have encrypted virtual machines, then you can add that capability in at extra cost. If you want to have additional layers of firewalling, you can add that in at extra cost. And you, you know, you're running up a, uh, essentially a VM of given size, T-shirt size, as I said earlier, you know, from Barracuda or Checkpoint or whatever it is you're wanting to use. It's, it's roll your own. It's, it's, it's a toolbox and you, and you put that together. Or you work with a, a consulting organization such as Extrovert maybe to, to put that kind of thing together for you. And it, it is a massive hand-holding exercise at the moment as people move from the comfort factor of on-premises to cloud and all these new models that we've just briefly talked about here. So, you know, if you're developing new applications from scratch, you're going to do it in a completely different way to how we used to in the last 10 years. But you have to think about all these security and compliance issues and then try and work with the, the cloud vendor to understand what they provide because it's not, it's not immediately obvious what you have to do. You know, I think you know, there's massive amounts of information, but like anything, it's a question of finding it and, and having people uh, maybe hold your hand to, to take you on that journey. But it's not something, so it's not waving a magic wand and suddenly, you know, looking at a Dilbert cartoon, you're suddenly in the cloud and everything's fine. It does take time. But, you know, it, it, I think it's inevitable. And I think, you know, my advice to anyone who's coming from more of a traditional background is, is to, you know, spend some time researching all these new technologies there's so much information available now on the internet to self-learn about these things. You know, maybe sign up to a cloud provider and have a play. Just remember to turn it off when you've had enough. And, um, you know, go out and get some certifications and that sort of thing, because it's coming. And I think anyone that thinks that everything will stay on-premises forever is... Uh, I think some stuff will stay on-premises, but uh, you know, generally speaking, there's a, there's a big move to, to cloud, be it hyperscale or, you know, the, the myriad other providers, including Ireland, that are out there. So, Chris, you mentioned earlier um, hybrid cloud. So what security considerations do people need to have in place when they're looking at sort of bridging between on-premises and, and public clouds? So for me, from a VMware perspective, if we forget about NSX for multi-hypervisor, uh, to me, from a VMware perspective, NSX is, is the big game changer here where you, uh, your software-defined network can bridge that gap between your on-premises and uh, off-premises in the cloud infrastructure and make it a secure extension of your on-premises infrastructure uh, with that software-defined networking. And, you know, whether that's connecting to AWS or uh, vCloud Air, that's one of the biggest game changers in the last sort of 12 months is, is that is this NSX that's coming out for you to be able to bridge that gap. 
So what about user management? So obviously, I know we focus on physical security and, and people coming in through firewalls, that kind of stuff. But what about managing your, your users and how they access the cloud? Yeah, so there's two points to that. One is accessing the cloud to deploy stuff. And then the other is how do you extend your user management into the cloud? So you know, in the case of a typical VMware cloud provider such as iLand, we host an Active Directory controller within the cloud environment and use native replication over the, the VPN or the uh, MPLS circuit so that we've got close authentication rather than having to go back over the, the WAN effectively every time. But the other piece is, is obviously allowing your users to do stuff. So we use VMware's vCloud Director product. We have written our own console on top of that, which allows a lot more functionality into vSphere and into Trend Micro and Veeam and Zerto. But under the, at the end of the day, there's role-based authentication and control there. So you can, you can uh, have that uh, tied back into the customs Active Directory if you want to. So you can say, you know, this particular user is effectively read-only or they've got the ability to power on and power off VMs, but they can't create new ones. You know, there's all, all kinds of um, RBAC controls that, that vCloud Director allows. Or they might be a, a DR operator and they, they're allowed to, to push the red button, but not anything else, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I think there's two elements there. In, in, this, in the case of the, the hyperscale clouds, I mean, obviously Microsoft make a, a big play around Azure Active Directory. AAD, migrating users to that, and then it you know, opens up the doors for Office 365, which you know, depends on that. Uh, so it's really about extending your on-premises Active Directory in, into the cloud, and uh, AWS have similar offerings there. So yeah, the, all, this, all the controls are there, and it's not just about the controls, it's about the audit as well. So if everyone logs on as root, then you don't know what people have done, really. So it's important to uh, give the right people the right access and also be able to audit what they're doing. Um, and you know, manage and control that. Definitely. I mean, role-based access control is, is a must. It's all about accountability. You can't stop people making changes, but you can make them accountable for doing that. That's right. That's right. So, Chris, coming back to consultancy, how is Extrovert helping organisations around cloud hosting? From an extrovert's perspective, I, we're, we're seeing a mixture, really. Uh, so we're seeing people who want to embrace cloud and fully and, and want to use, you know, whether that be a vCloud Air sort of partner or um, Azure or AWS. Um, but then we're also seeing a, a, a more significant portion of our customers wanting to dip their toe in. Uh, and look at sort of this concept of hybrid cloud. So and not fully embracing the cloud yet, but want to sort of scale out into their run mainly development workloads or some, some DR as a service bits and pieces. But you know, that's where we're seeing customers at the moment. And obviously we're, we're helping them along that journey. But yeah, it's mainly around the hybrid cloud play at the moment. Um, I don't think we've got any customers that are 100% in the cloud. Hmm. But are you seeing more organizations consider cloud now? In, in definitely. The I mean, definitely. I think the, the message is finally sinking in that cloud is not necessarily the, the, the future, because I'm sure something else will come along uh, in the future. But at the moment, it's the short-term future. And it, it solves that traditional problem around refresh of IT. And, and it's cyclic. So, you know, as, as customers come around to their oh no, it's five years, I've sweated the assets, I need to decide what I'm going to do. That's when they start to look at cloud and say, well, actually, you know, rather than depreciate the asset over time, can I actually just pay monthly as a service and get the same sort of uh, capacity and service, but 
you know, I haven't got to worry about that. And and it's similar to like a service provider, you know. So if if, if a customer outsources and goes to a service provider, potentially that they'll they'll pay on a use by use basis, but not as flexible as it would be with cloud. So you know, the big traditional people like Fujitsu, Atos, HP, uh, you know, who do their service provider piece. But for the small to medium businesses, I think cloud is a much better play, especially for the the simple workloads. Again, not suitable for every type of workload. And I think that's important and not suitable for every type of knowledge within the customer. So it might, as I said before, you might not want to put your top level director's email in Office 365 or on a cloud hosted exchange server or whatever. You might want to keep that on premise and have some sort of hybrid mix. And and, and that's what, what we're seeing. And Richard, so two questions here. What businesses are you seeing implement your cloud services and how are you addressing any concerns? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I think we've, our, our sort of moniker is, is do a small number of things really well. So we focused on three main areas, which is, which is cloud backup, disaster recovery as a service and infrastructure as a service. We don't have particular industry specific solutions, if you see what I mean. But what we're seeing is um, mid-tier financial services seems to be really getting it at the moment. And as I said earlier, many of these organizations didn't have any DR capability. And regulation has come in recently that says they really must have a DR capability. And importantly, they must test it regularly. So again, as we all know, many people had DR, but they never tested it because they were worried it wouldn't work. So we've been particularly successful in that space. So in the sort of hedge funds and and those kind of guys. And uh, we're also very successful, as I've said, in the ISV space. So, you know, people who are wanting to develop software as a service offering, but they don't really know how to do that themselves. They certainly don't want to build a data center themselves. So we've got quite a few of the um, the well-known uh, ITSM help desk solutions. Their SaaS offering is actually delivered by iLand, but to the end user, it's just a, a URL that they log into. You know, we host IP telephony solutions for some of the very well-known IP telephony vendors, again, as a SaaS offering. And you know all of that is, you know, in the case of customers like Mitel, that's available globally. So you know, if you're an organisation in Singapore, then you can tune into our Singapore data centre and, and that sort of thing. Um, but one of the key things in financial services, again, is, is a term called vendor diversity. And what that's basically saying is, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So if someone's going to move to the cloud, the advice is, don't just move to one cloud. Uh, so to you know, to your point, Chris, about hybrid cloud, it's maybe have your production hosting in one cloud offering, but have your DR capability in another one and your backup in another one. So if you remember a few years ago, uh, 2E2 went bust, large managed service provider, co-location provider, and they basically said to their customers, you've got 50 days to get everything out of our data center or you're not having it. And that put a lot of people in a very difficult position. And it's not just companies going bust, it's also big outages. So if your production provider goes down for whatever reason, whether it's someone dug through the, uh, the network cable or the UPS didn't spin up, that was a case recently, the generators didn't come online and they lost the power, or they found their diversely routed power wasn't actually that diverse, you lose your production facility, you can quickly spin up in your DR facility, which is somewhere else from a different vendor. So we're seeing that particularly important um, in financial services, and I would imagine that will follow around to you know, many of the other regulated industries. It's a shame when it all comes down to OLAs and SLAs from a, from a cloud hosting provider in the fact that when you lose a power or you lose your network, it's all about how quickly can they get that up and running again. Yeah. Uh, but which is right. I mean, there's no reason why, as an example, you couldn't 
and when we, we're talking about diversifying your vendors, in, in my view, there's no reason why you couldn't have two uh, VCAM partners because they're basically giving you the same technology stack, but include two completely different data centers, you know, diverse companies, different links. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, I'll put your development environment in Azure and then put your production environment in vCloud Air as an example, because you know, whilst it's just a virtual machine, isn't it? So it's the contents of the virtual machine that we're really worried, we're really worried about. But to me, actually let's use iLand or, and let's use another uh, vCloud Air partner uh, or you know, a, a, a Cloud Direct partner because it's the same technology. Uh, so to me, diverse sort of uh, vendors isn't necessarily about, you know, AWS, then Azure, then, then VMware. It's two different VMware partners, or you can't get different AWS and different Azure partners these days, unless you're going to do Azure Stack, which is a whole different uh, podcast. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a good point. So we, we work with, with other managed service providers who, in the, you know, in the early days of vCloud Director, they've spun up their own public cloud, multi-tenanted cloud, and they're managing customers on there, but they're then working with us for the DR or the backup capability. And then when they've seen the economies of scale that we managed to achieve, they say, well, actually, you know, this is so much more affordable than our own cloud that we've spent a long time building. We're going to shut that down. And we've seen that happen over the last few months with some really big names in the industry who have decided to, to get out of the public cloud game because they can't compete and just go back to their core business, which is maybe being a managed service provider, and just use you know, the other clouds. So we, we certainly see that quite a bit all, all around the place. And I think, you know, just back to your point a few minutes ago, Chris, around NSX, I think that's going to be really interesting as that starts to be adopted a bit more for that utopian solution where someone can fail over a VM to another site, you know, vMotion it, or just bring it up in the other site on the same IP address. Uh, no, no DNS changes required. That's going to be amazing. And as more customers start to adopt NSX, I think, I think the service providers are adopting it, but it's, it's getting the customers to adopt it and understand how that's going to work. It's really exciting. Excellent. So you guys have given us some good info there on cloud hosting. And um, before we wrap up, what do you see in terms of future trends? Where is cloud hosting heading? So I think from my perspective, as, as I've kind of talked about earlier, I think we're kind of on a fork in the road. In terms of people developing new applications and, and uh, all these new technologies coming out, Internet of Things and you know data, data lakes and all these things we haven't kind of touched on, there's all this new technology that the, the, typically the hyperscale vider, the providers are introducing services around that. So we see a whole raft of new stuff that is really going to move to the to the hyperscale providers, might provide, might move to other providers as well. And then I think for the next, certainly the foreseeable future, there's still the traditional stuff that we spent most of the time talking about. That will need to continue, whether it stays on premises, whether it moves to a VMware-powered cloud, whether it moves to the hyperscalers, you know, that will continue. And it's not going to go away anytime soon, uh, much, much to the annoyance maybe of, of AWS and Azure. But uh, you know, people will continue to uh, be running traditional VMware-based or VM-based workloads that need to be managed around the place. But, you know, I think we've talked about a lot of this already. You know, DevOps, containers, what's going to come next? You know, Docker's been very, very popular for the last few years. We've certainly implemented uh, things like vSphere integrated containers. One of the things I didn't mention is the importance of presenting APIs. So we, you know, everything that we provide through our user interfaces can be done through APIs. So whether that's done in code or whether that's done through PowerShell, PowerCLI, you know, I think that's an important thing around uh, automation. So I think it's exciting times. I would, would say again, you know, 
go out there, get some training on all these things, you know, something to do in the evening if you've got a few, a few hours to spare, phone up on all these new technologies that are coming out, get some certifications, add them to your CV and your LinkedIn profile, and it won't do you any harm. Excellent. And Chris, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I concur, really. I mean, I think I think the biggest game changer potentially in the next 12 months, 24 months, is going to be VMware on AWS. World-class VMware hypervisor sitting in the flexibility of the AWS model. I think it's going to be a, a very interesting technology trend. And I think, I mean, who, who doesn't want um, elastic you know, DRS and elastic load changing? I mean, I think that's really what the customers have been asking for. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I don't see the as a service model changing or, 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 or I see it changing but not going away because uh, customers want to pay on a monthly basis as an OPEX rather than a CAPEX cost, I, I think, especially because new startups, they haven't got the capital. They want to be able to deliver their services in someone else's data center. Yeah, Chris, I'll just, I'll just comment on that. Disagree if you want, but... I think the AWS, vSphere on AWS is, is, is very interesting. I mean, we've, we've done some analysis on that, and I think it will be very, very interesting for the, for the larger customers. But if you look at the commitment, I mean, what you're effectively getting is a, is a physical server to which ESX is deployed. I mean, and there was a lot of confusion, I think, in the early days that it was a, effectively an ESX VM running on AWS, and it's not. It's bare metal hypervisor. Yeah, so the, the initial commitment is, is pretty big. You know, we're talking terabytes of RAM and that sort of thing. You know, certainly the, the sweet spot that we see in Ireland of a sort of 50 to 200 VM shop, it's going to be too big for them. But I think it's going to be really exciting, you know, for people to be able to have that close proximity to all the other uh, AWS services, which would be effectively on the, on the LAN. You know, I think that's going to be really exciting. But I think, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I think the customers still need to manage all the sort of ESX bits and bobs and the virtual networking and that kind of thing. So it is slightly different to a true cloud service. But I think it'd be very interesting to see how it takes off. You know, we, we sometimes get customers who want to deploy a, a private cloud with iLand. So in that scenario, we would, you know, we'd give them three Cisco blades. It's, it's hooked up to, to vCloud Director as what's called a provider virtual data center. So they get dedicated access to those three blades. And they, you know, particularly for things like Oracle workloads, they know exactly what hardware it's running on, how many sockets and cores and whatnot. But uh, you just don't get the economies of scale of, of a true public multi-tenanted cloud where you're able to, you know, sort of oversubscribe the infrastructure and that sort of thing to a certain extent. But I think it'd be really yeah. interesting to see how that takes off. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. The AWS thing, it's not niche, you know, uh, in that respect, but I think it is for certain size customers, you know, whereas AWS itself is obviously for, for anybody who wants to come along and use it. A, AWS, uh, VMware on AWS is, is uh, you're right, there is um, a, a minimum commit and that will put some people off. Perfect, excellent. So we'll uh, wrap up there. Thank you guys for your time. Um, and it'll be good and interesting to see where cloud hosting heads. Definitely. That brings us to the end of another episode of Cloud Insiders. Thanks for tuning in, hope you enjoyed it, and to find out more and access show notes and downloads, head over to cloudinsiders.fm. You can track us on Twitter at Cloud Insiders, and we'd love you to leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.